Welcome to This Week in Witchcraft. The elements have been conquered with intense heat, and witchcraft has become more cosmopolitan. Can you spot it out in the wild? I'm Dylan Hamilton, and with me are... Michael Deerham, David Casson, and Andrew Hudson. David has kindly brought us some witchcraft from out in the wild. David, do you want to take it from here? Uh, certainly. We have referenced this writer before. It's Rabbi Samantha Frank, who is a rabbinic fellow at uh, Temple Micah in Washington, D.C., wrote an article. It's actually published. It's, it's still up on the MSNBC website, but it's an opinion article talking about the hypocrisy of Christian religious freedom rhetoric post-Roe. The tagline being, why is right-wing Christianity the only religion afforded legal and political accommodation in America? And my Jewish grandmother would like a word because her Jewish grandmother actually helped to march and, and supported abortion rights in, in her day, the 70s and, uh, and the 80s. This uh, rabbi, Rabbi Samantha Frank, quotes some Talmudic traditions, but then goes on uh, to say, the foot soldiers of the modern American anti-abortion movement remain overwhelmingly Christian. According to Pew Research, 33% of American evangelicals believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases, compared with 82% of Buddhists and 83% of Jews. But what would an alternative religious reading of abortion rights look like? Why should Americans simply accept that the only religious freedom worthy of respect and consideration is of the right-wing Christian variety? Banning abortion is a violation of our religious liberty and ability to fulfill even our religious obligations, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Rabbi Rutenberg told me in an email, the Talmud, the text that serves as the primary source of Jewish law, considers the fetus mere water for the first 40 days after conception and part of the pregnant person's, part of the pregnant person's body after that as potential life until birth, not as an actual life, at conception, enshrining one specific theology as law is a violation of the Establishment Clause. This rabbi, referencing some Talmudic tradition, actually has the fetus, which is hilarious because it's Latin for baby. Uh, the fetus is water for 40 days after conception, and then is part treated as part of the woman's body, and then builds upon that religious tradition to say, this is why we can abort children in the womb because it's not a life. That's my religious tradition. You have your religious tradition. You're really just being hypocritical. I'm trying to silence uh, your view by, by pointing out hypocrisy. So let's look at the witchcraft with words that this person is, is guilty of. Well, um, there's a lot of misuse of terms here, and it's also a very confusing kind of statement. Certainly, I think that there is an appeal here to, to change the ethics of the situation, to change the definitions of the situation, trying to go to different sources for what are morality and truth, and so on. But when she talking about the uh, <clears throat> violation of the Establishment Clause, it actually says that Congress shall not make any law against the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. And what happened was not Congress passing a law upheld by the Supreme Court, which stated that babies in the womb are human beings. And therefore, uh, just to be clear, you know, 
these human beings are also created equal by their maker, and they too have full citizenship from conception, and thus to harm them is to harm a U.S. citizen. We already have plenty of laws called, you know, know, murder laws. We don't kill people. And so the Supreme Court overturning one of their precedents before isn't some violation of the Establishment Clause. Also, the religious freedom that is in play in these United States uh, is such that nobody is telling her that she can't practice her religion. You know, and if part of her religion, if a big part of her religion is killing babies, then there are plenty of states uh, like California and Virginia and New York and plenty of others that celebrate abortion. I mean, they they stand up and applaud the the ability to to kill babies to the 40th week and beyond. They 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 celebrate that. They rejoice in that. But they'll put you in jail if you do that to a dog. Right. So, they, I mean, there are plenty of places for her to practice her religion. She's not being impeded in that regard. But then trying to make the appeal, uh, there's a pluralistic philosophy here saying that, you know, right-wing evangelical fundamentalist or whatever, you know, you're not the only ones who gets religious freedom. Well, it's funny that you think that we have that in spades, we would sure enjoy that in spades. We have it a lot more than other places. But still, there is a lot of ability and freedom, liberty for people just to believe whatever they want and practice that. I always um, feel like the people that, what was it called? The um, It's the, it's the uh, spaghetti monster people. Uh, the it? flying spaghetti flying, monster. The flying spaghetti monster religion uh, is a great example. They've won court cases. Uh, they, you know, they have the right to wear their spaghetti strainers on their heads when they get their driver's license pictures now. I mean, this is how open, free, and so on that our country is. So just because the Supreme Court overturns a precedent doesn't mean that Congress has passed a law. This is where one thing happens and you you call it something else. This is a false equivocation. You're, something happened, but you're calling it something else. You're saying that has a, you're, you're you're giving it a different name and a different effect than what actually happened, and so misnaming of things, you know, calling out from and then and then trying to say you know I have an ethical compulsion to uphold abortion because of my religion. Well, just because something is within a religion doesn't make it moral. Just because something is a part of a religious tradition doesn't mean that it needs to be protected. Her claim to an objective standard is here is, well, if it's a part of a religion, it should be protected. So the Aztecs, human sacrifice should be protected then, under under that logic, right? Yeah, the Aztecs were a lot better at killing people for sacrifices than, obviously, this Jewish tradition is. Just because it's part of religion doesn't mean it should be protected and promoted, because there is an objective standard. I mean, if there was a religious... Um, group that felt like it was important to kill Jews, she wouldn't be advocating for their protection because she knows there's an objective truth and she's suppressing it. I mean, you are, you're saying then that there are some religious practices that are just wrong. Yeah. And how do you, and how do we know that? 
Because God says so. So we have a standard by which we're judging those. So her claim that there are some, you know, uh, that there, you can have some practices and not others, that's, you know, that's unfair. And we would actually have to agree with her and says, um, yeah, yes. that's true. You can have some religious practices and not others. Mm-hmm. It is unfair. It's unfair to evil, right? Like it, you don't get to say that what you do, which is evil, is actually good. That's that's not allowed. So she's not pointing out hypocrisy. She's actually pointing out a truth. Yeah, and she's appealing to the god of pluralism to get it done, right? Like this is an argument from the god of pluralism. Yes. And whether she believes in pluralism or not, that's who she's trying to appeal to in order to get her religious practice back. Right. But the, you know, the god of pluralism is obviously no god at all and exists in a fictional realm called neutrality. There is no neutrality. She, she's basically assuming neutrality here in which various religions are to be allowed to practice freely. But she's assuming that neutrality, but that neutrality doesn't exist. And in this way, when you're, when you're messing with the ethics of a situation and, and like sourcing your understanding of things from a different, from a different angle, um, this would be most akin to the Old Testament witchcrafts of, of necromancy, where you're, you're drawing up authority from a different source that doesn't exist. And then when you are saying uh, that... You know, you know, X happened, but actually you're saying Y is what happened. I mean, this this is obviously also lying, demonic uh, witchcraft as well. She claims to be appealing to the god of Judaism. What she's actually doing is she's appealing to a completely different authority. Her own majority opinion is what everybody thinks. I am uh, claiming some Talmudic tradition but really, what she's trying to do is to assert her own autonomy, her own self-rule, that she gets to decide what is right or wrong, and you don't get to call me out on it because I'm just calling it religious freedom. And if you don't allow me to do that, then you're just a hypocrite. So I don't think she believes any of this. I don't think she believes this entire flow of our, I, I, she has to know how, how ridiculous it is. Her whole point was to try to catch her opponents in hypocrisy, to try to shut them down. She's trying to shut down your voice. She doesn't actually believe this. So my question would be, is that different than the God of Judaism? And that might get us in trouble, but is it different? Is that is what you just explained actually different than the God of Judaism? Yeah, it depends on what strain of Judaism we're talking about. Right. Um, uh, if she's part of a very liberal strain, you know, then she's going to be abdicating for all kinds of basic um, liberal postmodern values um, such as they are. But notice what's going on in that she's trying to say because a religion exists in which abortion is perfectly fine and indeed should be pursued in many cases. She's saying precisely because there's a religion that exists that advocates in this way and functions in this way, thus it should not be impeded upon by anyone else. Right? So that, that's the, that's that, um, that, that pluralism. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's not really Judaism. Not really. 
that's pluralism. And so does she actually believe in her Judaism? Is she actually a very careful um, adherent to the Talmud? Who knows? Uh, In fact, who cares? The fact that it simply exists gives reason then for her to say you shouldn't have any impediment upon abortion whatsoever simply because this religion exists in which it's fine and dandy. Right. So I I think where I was kind of going with that is we we make the distinction between oneism and twoism quite a bit. Is it not just the same religion and with different names or categories because we are adherents to twoism, whereas we would say the only alternative outside of biblical Christian belief is oneism. And she's just using a different form of oneism Yes. To win our arguments, right? Yeah. Like, so it's still the same God of Judaism, but it's just got different categories to it or different names. Like, so you're saying that her conception of God is the God of Judaism? No, 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 no. I'm just saying that outside of that, using the categories of oneism and twoism, theirs is eventually going to be serving the same God. Yeah. In the end. Yeah. And so it's themselves. It was a good observation by C.S. Lewis that in the final assessment, everything comes down to Christianity or Hinduism. He was acknowledging it's either, you know, twoism or oneism. Yeah. Um, and she's using the name of uh, Judaism and wanting to talk about the Jewish God. Well, the God revealed in the, in the scriptures certainly is creator, not creation, and stands out, out uh, from his creation and provides the standards to it. And that's mm-hmm. not the God she believes in. No, not at all. So there's a lot of people um, reaching, trying to find some kind of standard to understand what happened with Roe v. Wade. Now, it's interesting, is it not, that in this outrage, what are people appealing to now? Not what they used to appeal to. They used to appeal to science. Hmm. Isn't that remarkable? They used to try to point to science to prove that abortion is fine and dandy. No. Now they're making religious appeals. Yeah, the mask is off, and really science was an expedient god for them. Yes, yeah. And, I, and I think in the same vein that, that her use of uh, Talmudic uh, tradition is the same expedient um, vehicle as well. Mm. Uh, and, and if that doesn't work, they're going to go do something else. I mean, the, the latest one, the more uh, secular argument would be most of these kids that, you know, especially for low income families, look at the life that they would have. They're going to end up this. It's really you know, it's just really hard life and many of them will end up on the street so abortion would have just been better yeah that's the latest argument that abortion is actually better in in many cases for these uh these poor kids and so, so really sacrifices for the common good well they're, they're just trying to be compassionate yeah i, I don't want that compassion compassionate killing right but, yeah the mercy, the mercy of the wicked is cruel how very communist of you she literally s- cites the talmud in which the statement is made that the fetus is water up to a certain point. Can you believe that? Like, that's that's your argument? That's your pro-abortion argument? Like, how much of the battle has been waged wherein the Christians have been quoting from the Bible saying, this is a human, this is a human life, this is someone who's made in the image of God, and they're like, you know, get your Bible out of my face. We don't need your, we don't need your, you know, your your mystical texts full of superstitions and so on and so forth. You know, we we're running with science. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, we've got these 4D ultrasounds and all the medical technology in the world and are like, yep, that's a human being through and through. And now they're resorting to religious texts to try to fight for abortion. Now, that's a very interesting move. That's a very interesting difference than it used to be. It's a desperate move. So you had mentioned and you had categorized this brand of witchcraft as necromancy, appealing to an authority that uh, is improper or that just uh, does, doesn't exist. Right. Trying to find a, a, an alternative authority, like a sourcing, sourcing something. You know, so we're going to uh, source our ethical argument now from a whole different angle. Right. We're not appealing to some, you know, commonly held objective truth with everybody. We're, we're saying that because, because we have this thing in the Talmud, then we, then we should make it available for everybody. So the proper response then from, from the Christian to this, if you're going to call it out, we've identified it. We said it's, it's necromancy. We said that you're appealing to an authority to which you should not appeal. So then the proper response from a Christian should be to appeal to proper authority. How would you do that? Yeah, I would definitely point to the um, the passage in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, <laughs> um, and point out that if a child is, unborn child is harmed or killed in a fight, that the penalty is life for life. And that's a great Old Testament passage handed down from Moses, which I think that any Jew or Christian would appreciate the implications of. Maybe she's a Jew who doesn't respect what Moses has said. Well, he was a man, so. Well, it's possible. I think also is simply the matter that uh, God reminds us in Romans chapter 1 that his wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. But what happens is they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they know the truth. Uh, they, they know it's wrong. I think that it's been observed by Jeff Durbin and many others that when a woman goes and commits abortion, it is a traumatic experience, more often than not, on the street. They admit that they're killing their babies. They need counseling. They need all sorts of help. It's very difficult for them to go through it. It's very difficult for them to recover after it. And if it's simply the removing of an appendix, why all this drama? And it's not because people are picketing, not because it's a political issue, but because it's a moral issue. Um, and they're trying to suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Well, I think that wraps it up for our discussion today on This Week in Witchcraft. Uh, what recommendations do we have for content? Michael, we'll start with you. Well, I've been enjoying a uh, podcast that was put together, um, and you even hear it right now. Um, it's called Christ in All Scriptures by Edmund Clown. He was put out by Westminster Theological Seminary, some old recordings of a professor by the name of Edmund Clowney. And I always knew that I was um, influenced by Clowney because of the people who I was reading who cited him all the time and I would read a few things by him and so on. But I finally, for whatever reason, just realized, hey, I, I, I want to go listen to him directly. So Christ and all the scriptures, maybe 12 or 16 uh, lectures. And it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. Now, the audio is not all that great, but 
as he's been teaching, I've been listening and I'm thinking, yeah, well, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm studying, I'm preaching, and I'm saying stuff. And now I'm listening to Edmund Clowney. He's like, yeah, so he was saying it, you know. <laughs> and, of course, it was said before him and so on. But it's, it's so clarifying, the things that he says. It's, I've rejoiced and worshipped just listening to these lectures. I have finished a 10-part series. It's actually on, uh, it's available on YouTube. It's from Founders Ministries. So if you guys have not, never been to founders.org, highly recommend it. Founders is referencing the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention, convention in the uh, 1860s. And Founders uh, Movement has produced a bunch of books and they have conferences. And this this was from a conference a few years ago, and it's a 10-part series on Baptist covenant theology. The speakers that they had, they didn't always identify them, but I could tell by some of their voices you know, who some of them um, were. One in particular was Dr. Uh, Fred Malone, who has written um, a number of books, especially on baptism, baptism of disciples alone. I, I enjoyed that. It's, like, it's for free. It's on YouTube. You go to Founders, their channel. You may be able to find it on the Founders website, but it's from a a conference a couple of years ago, and it gives a nice overview. If you're interested in a covenant theology itself and from the Baptist kind of spin um, on it, and you know, from these guys' perspective, a proper understanding of covenant theology will uh, and, and, and the new covenant itself will lead you to believers' baptism. So, any uh, my Presbyterian friends um, listening, you know, there's the uh, that's that's a shot at you, uh, and 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 I, and I love you so much. <laughs> Uh, maybe, but there you go. Maybe they could just sprinkle it in with their other media consumption. Solid. Well done. Well done, sir. <laughs> but there you go. I recently was, well, I found out about this Bible and asked for it for Father's Day. It is the uh, NET Bible, New English Translation. And I'm not promoting a specific translation. The reason why I asked for this Bible is that Basically, 50% of the content on each page is the translator's notes. They go into the Hebrew, the Greek, which manuscripts they have chosen and why, whether it's majority reading or Septuagint or Masoretic or from the Aramaic. It is a very helpful study Bible. At one time in my life, I was using um, a Bible that had commentary in it, and I felt a conviction that, hey, I, I shouldn't be using commentary to help interpret the Bible, but rather let the text speak for itself. And so this is part of my journey of coming to engage with the text in a way that there are other people who are also engaging, and I can see why they chose the translation in which they've chosen. And I know we've discussed previously on this podcast about how translation efforts are also interpretation efforts in, in many respects, and this is helpful for uncovering why they have interpreted are using these words to convey what the original text is in our English language. Amen. Um, well, my recommendation, as you know, or as you can tell from some of my other recommendations, I've been on a Shakespearean kick. So my recommendation is Shakespeare the Puritan, who was Martin Marplet, And this is by Douglas Wilson. It's an hour read or a 30-minute listen if you're listening to it at 2x. So I was... Uh, Thoroughly convinced of the the Stratfordian view, or the actual name William Shakespeare, the man who bore that name as being the author, because I understood those two have held another view when I was in high school and in college to have very poor reasons as to why it might have been someone else. 
Wilson lays out a argument that has going to, it is going to send me down a rabbit hole um, because this is uh, a different author entirely. And it's a man who was the 17th Earl of Oxford. His name was Edward Devere. He had the right education, traveling experiences, background, uh, life stories in order to write all the things that Shakespeare did in his plays. And he also had connections to this uh, anonymous writer, Martin Marplet, who actively resisted the Church of England through a a group of letters that was sent out under this anonymous name. Uh, he knew them, and there are connections to his person in that way. And also, the language that was used and the voice that was used for Martin Marplet is very close to William Shakespeare. So it's going to challenge me a lot as I go through this this study, but Shakespeare the Puritan, who was Martin Marplet by Douglas Wilson. And that wraps it up for today. We are always very thankful for our listeners tuning in every week and for supporting us by rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. And we hope you can join us again for another week of uncovering and rebuking witchcraft in the modern world.